0: Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and I would even invite you to stand at home while I read it. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If you would pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are always needful of it. We're maybe more aware uh, in these days of our need for you to speak to us, for you to assure our hearts which are frail and fragile, Lord, for you to form Christ in us, Lord, for you to um, illuminate the darkened parts of the heart, for you to warm hearts that have grown cold, Lord, for in these times when we're feeling the pain of being apart, we pray that you would unite your people by your word, Lord, even as we gather every Sunday, you do that. But we're especially aware of it this morning. So, Lord, use this word uh, to assure your people to tell us the truth of the gospel. Lord, to remind us that we indeed worship a great God and we have a great Savior in the person of Christ. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, around 20 years ago, an educational theory was proposed by a professor of psychology at UCLA named Robert Bjork, and in that theory, he asserted that if you hope to learn anything of value, there's got to be some struggle in it, there's got to be some trial, there's got to be some difficulty in the learning. He, he called this theory desirable difficulty, and I've got to tell you, I think he's right. I think that is the way to learn. And I also have to tell you, I, wish, I really wish he wasn't right. We're living in times that I really wish we didn't have to live through right now. Something has come upon us unexpectedly, suddenly, I think devastatingly. I, I find nothing desirable in it as I stand here right now. Nothing really good in it, nothing desirable in social distancing and hand sanitizer, and face masks, and treating other human beings more like vectors than we do as neighbors. Nothing desirable or good in so many people getting sick, so many people suffering, some even to the point of death. And yet, neither can I believe that it's meaningless. Neither can I believe that You know, I can't think of this thing that we're enduring as amounting to nothing more or less than simply the cold outworking of an evolutionary process in which the strong survive and the weak get crushed. Of course, we're not the first generation in the church to endure trials like this, and like those who've gone before us, as we live through it, it seems that the Lord would also have us learn in it first by looking to his word. So I want to spend some time this morning in a story from the Bible about a sudden, unexpected, unwelcome storm that has come upon God's people. And I, and I want to take on this passage, looking at it through the lens of comparing and contrasting. And in particular, I want to compare and contrast the following. Two kinds of power, two kinds of fear, and two kinds of faith. Now, Jesus and his disciples had set out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a really unique body of water. It sits actually 700 feet below sea level, but it's within 30 miles of mountains that are above 9,000 feet in elevation. And so that creates an environment where the cold air from the mountains often clashed with the warm, humid air from the Sea of Galilee, which would result in these Terrible, massive, sudden storms. And now Peter and James and John were in this boat together, and Peter and James and John were tough Galilean fishermen who had spent their whole life working these waters. They would have been familiar with storms like this. So when this storm came upon them and got them crying out, thinking they're going to die, you know it's not an ordinary storm. And maybe even more surprising is that as it rages, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. In fact, and maybe ironically, it's not the terror of the storm, but terrified disciples who wake Jesus up, crying out, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And when he wakes, we find out that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still, and the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And... As we look at that, first I want to appreciate what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't grab for ropes or oars or a bucket so he can start bailing out the ship. He, he doesn't even tell his disciples not to worry or be scared. Instead, he does two things he commands and he calms. First, he commands the storm. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't kneel and pray. He doesn't call upon the Lord, but directly and fiercely, some translations call it a rebuke, he commands the storm as one would an unruly animal. Peace, be still, sit. And this leads to the second thing Jesus does. He causes the storm to obey. He commands and he calms. The wind ceased, and Mark says there was a great calm. Now, storms stop all the time, sometimes suddenly, but what's described here is both instantaneous cessation of the storm and instantaneous calming of the waters. The storm didn't just stop, it's actually replaced. Mark says with a great calm. The nautical term for this is is dead calm. It's like the waters went to glass. Now, when storms at sea pass, the swells and the waves can actually go on for hours, sometimes days after the storm is over. But here, the command of Jesus, at the command of Jesus, the sea goes from life-threatening chaos to glass, like you could look at your reflection in the water. And all throughout the Bible and, just in, and in just about every ancient culture, the sea represented power beyond human control the power which could be controlled only by god himself in fact from the very first verses of the bible and the creation story itself god hovered over the waters which were said to be without form and void which is a very sort of polite way of saying they were chaotic and we very quickly learn that only god himself can tame and order the chaos so when jesus faces this storm, not calling upon God, but commanding it as God, we are witnessing him do what only God himself is able to do, in exercising divine power over creation. So, in the same way that he forgave the paralytic of his sin, showing that he didn't come merely to show people how to get forgiveness from God, but that he gives forgiveness as God, And in the same way he tells the Pharisees on the Sabbath that he didn't just come to teach about rest, but is himself rest, here he shows that he does not merely call upon or point to a higher power, but that he is in fact the power, the great power. You see, to see Jesus as he truly is necessitates actually seeing every other power as it truly is. It means that you have to see every other power, however terrible, however chaotic, however life-threatening it may be, you have to see it as subservient to him because he is in himself the ultimate power. If we wanted to just put it in the most simple terms, we could say that there's really only two kinds of power in the world, ultimate power in God and contingent power in everything else. And as we live our lives, we're always coming up against some kind of threatening power of another, aren't we? we? Some we sort of live with, imagining we can manage those things. Maybe we can put them off for a while, put them out of our mind for a while. But others blow in like the storm did, fiercely, suddenly. And when that happens, and, and, and it may be that we're living sort of through this right now, it's hard to imagine a greater power. I think that figures into the disciples crying out to Jesus as they experience this. Don't you care that we're dying here? Like, you know, don't you care about our lives? Don't you care about our well-being? Don't you love us, Jesus? And, and maybe those questions ring familiar to you. Maybe you've put those questions to God in some way or another in your life, maybe something has blown into your life or someone else's that is overwhelming to the point where that thing seems like proof positive that God doesn't care, that God is cruel, that he's too powerless to do anything about what is chaotically unraveling and making my life come apart, so that we easily begin to think that if he really loved me, this wouldn't be happening. On the one hand, events are too big for me to handle, handle, or maybe it's that our troubles are too small to bother with, for God to bother with. It's interesting that three times in this passage, Mark uses the term for great or enormous to describe things that we ought to be paying attention to. The Greek word is one we still use in English. The word is mega. The first time it's used to describe the storm, Mark Wants us to know this isn't an ordinary storm. This is a mega storm. The second time that term is used is to describe the calm of the sea after Jesus rebuked the storm. He calls it mega calm. But the third time it's used has nothing to do with the weather. It's used to describe the fear of the disciples. There comes a point where they have mega fear. Fear. Now, when the storm hits that little boat, they're very afraid, but that's not when they have mega fear, interestingly. The real fear hit them in the dead calm of the sea with the storm over after Jesus commands and calms it. That's when Jesus asks them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it's interesting to think about why Jesus put that question to them. Wouldn't wouldn't you think, or, or why is that situation like that? Wouldn't you think that, like the stilled sea, after the storm had passed, they too would be mega calm? But they're not. They're actually more afraid after the storm than they were in it. And the question is why? And I want to propose, I think it's because they have just witnessed a power even greater than the storm. They've now come to see the power of the Savior. So that as terrifying as the power outside of the boat was, now they're realizing there is even a greater power within the boat with them in the person of Jesus. And at first, Jesus' behavior here is pretty puzzling, I think. I mean, right on the heels of rebuking the storm, he turns around and rebukes his disciples. He doesn't seem terribly interested in comforting them or even sympathizing with them. He just asked them, why are you so afraid? And, I was, and when I was reading this, I just wanted, you know, someone in that boat to say, Jesus, are you serious? How can you ask us why we're so afraid? Here's why we were so afraid, because we were about to die, because a mega storm hit our tiny boat and it was filling with water and we were about to go to the bottom of the sea. And on top of that, it didn't seem like you cared. And if you cared, you know, and if you are as powerful as we thought you to be, why would you have even let this happen? And, and I, I don't want to blow this off or super spiritualize it because I think we're striking at really one of the most challenging ideas in the whole Christian faith, which is the possibility that Jesus actually allows the storms to come for our good. Certainly, if Jesus has the power to command storms and still seas, he has the power to prevent them from coming at all, and yet he allows them to come. So back to Jesus' question to them. What if him asking them why they were so afraid is neither crazy nor insensitive? What if he's calling upon his people to learn to live with and experience the terrifying powers that are certain to come into your life and mine, but in a different way? What what if his allowing them to come doesn't mean that he's cruel on the one hand or indifferent on the other? I think it is helpful to consider what Jesus doesn't say to his disciples after commanding and calming the storm. He never tells them what you think he would tell people like this, that they should have been braver. He doesn't chastise them and say, well, I thought you were a bunch of tough Galilean fishermen. I thought you could handle this stuff better than you did. In no way will he suggest that the solution to their fears is actually found in themselves. The answer to our fears, it turns out, is not to become somehow fearless. Jesus says the answer to our fears is faith. Not to be less dependent on him and more on ourselves, but more dependent on him and less on ourselves. Not summoning up personal courage, but actually crying out to him to the end that we would trust in him, that we would rely on him. Because as great and terrifying as those powers are, ultimate power is in the person of Jesus. Jesus. The disciples have been with Jesus for a little while now, and they've seen him do and say a lot of amazing things, but it's in the storm, actually, that they begin to see him in an entirely new way. So that they even ask the question, even as people who already know Jesus and have been with him for a little time, they ask the question, who is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him the storm was terrifying not subject to human control with power over my life but they see now that jesus is more powerful less subject to human control and that he in fact holds the power of my life in his hands two immense powers the power of the storm and the power of jesus compared and contrast contrasted storms are powerful but they are impersonal they are indifferent they're destructive They just blow in and inflict their destructive power upon you. That's the reality of the powers at work in our fallen and broken world. When the storm comes, and it will come sooner or later, as we all one day will meet our end, we can be a lot like the disciples in that boat, struggling, fighting, crying out, finding out that nothing can be summoned from within us that will make any difference in the end. But Jesus is a different kind of power. He's not like the storm. He's not indifferent. He's not destructive. But He is powerful. He is power itself. And His power, in fact, is untamed, it is unpredictable. It is unpredictable in wisdom and in love. Storms are indiscriminate and destructive. Storms don't love you, but Jesus' power is particular. It's unbounded, and it is specifically loving toward you. So don't miss the loving fierceness in Jesus' rebuke to his disciples. As if to say, if you knew me better, if you really understood the power of my love for you, the depths of it, if you would trust in me and not in yourself, you will discover that I am both unhinged power and unfettered love. If you had known my perfect and powerful love for you, fear would have been cast overboard and sunk to the bottom of the sea. If all we're able to see is just the one kind of power, the powers that rage and threaten in this world, then we'll always be at their mercy. We'll, we'll forever be either denying the reality of those powers or will forever be desperately trying to manage and maintain the illusion that we're okay on our own, that we can negotiate life on our own terms, and that we'd rather rely on ourselves than rely on our Savior. But if we see Jesus as he truly is and come to put our faith in him, we will come to know a greater power, one that actually loves me. And we can be assured that we're safe in God's good grace even when all earthly powers threaten. You see, looking to Jesus as he really is, both powerful and and loving, produces another kind of fear, one actually commended throughout the whole Bible, called the fear of the Lord. Not a servile fear where you're living in fear of punishment for doing wrong, but the kind of fear that grips you when you come to know the awesomeness of great power joined with great love. The breathtaking reality of his utter greatness that works to our good in being saved, in being made safe, in having been given life and rest and assurance. It is the conviction that Jesus is the good, unsafe king who holds sway over all other powers, who reigns over our lives in such a way That the troubles that come upon us will not undo us, but will ultimately work out for our good and for his glory. Even if I can't comprehend those things now, that Jesus allows and wants us to see. You see, when Jesus asks them, have you still no faith? The, The gist of the question is actually, where is your faith? You see, he's not so much urging greater personal strength in the form of faith, but like, you know, if you'd only been stronger in your personal faith, you wouldn't have been so afraid and maybe this wouldn't have happened. Jesus isn't actually urging personal bravery. He's urging greater faith. Faith um, directed to the right place. His question isn't so much about the strength of their faith, but about its object, what they're trusting in. So the question isn't really... Whether or not you or I have faith, that seems obvious. We all have faith in something. The question is, what's our faith in? If Christian faith is the opposite of personal strength, fortitude, and powering through on our own, in fact, we can see from this story what a disaster relying on personal strength can be, how deadly that is, how it can actually be an obstacle to, to faith in Jesus. So long as we rely on our own resources, we'll never look outside of ourselves. We'll never look for the power in another. If, if our faith is in ourselves, it cannot be in Jesus. At the heart of faith, I think, is personal weakness that propels you to find your strength in Jesus. We're not told this part of the story, but I can imagine as they put out to sea that day that no one would have had more faith in themselves than Peter, James, and John, these seasoned fishermen. I mean, who was better prepared to read the weather and to know if a storm was coming, to prepare for it, to batten down the hatches, to manage everything as they had done probably a million times before since they were little kids? That, that little boat was their little world that they could control, one that they had managed so well their whole lives with all the skills an experience that had accrued to probably give them a great sense of self-reliance, a great faith in themselves. And yet, all of that would come to fail them in an instant. When the storm came, they became despairing. They unraveled. They cried out for their lives. They couldn't manage their world anymore. And I think all that has to get us asking, could it be that Jesus allowed the storm to come in order to put a dagger into self-reliance? To fearsomely and finally put a gracious end to relying on the contingent powers of the world so that they would come to rely on the power of Jesus alone. There's another episode in the Gospels. It's another boat story, actually, where the the deadliness of self-reliance is exposed for what it is. It shows up in Luke 5 when Jesus asked Peter if he wanted to go fishing, if he'd take him fishing. And Peter tells Jesus that, you know, essentially, I'd be happy to do that, but we've been toiling all night and we've caught nothing. But, you know, he sort of said, I'll take you anyway. And you can imagine, I mean, here's Jesus the carpenter inserting himself into Peter's area of self-reliance. of of expertise and self-reliance, his realm of confidence, the thing that he had relied upon his whole life to put a roof over his head and food on the table. And yet when they go out, they set down the nets, Peter's certain that it would come to absolute nothing, and they haul in the biggest catch of his life. And when Peter experiences that, he's confronted with a troubling fact that in fact what he had put his faith in was a pitiful facade of self-reliance. He came to see that his faith had been misplaced and that there was a greater power and provision in the person of Jesus. And all he could muster in that moment are the words of a man who realizes that he needs to despair of himself and depend on his Savior. So he cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, when Jesus asks, where is your faith, he's not merely exposing misplaced faith. He's also, I think, giving an invitation, an invitation to give up on self-trust, to throw yourself, your trust completely onto Jesus, who is powerful enough not only to tame a chaotic storm, but gracious enough to handle the chaos in our lives, We're living in a time where it very well may be that our fragile and fraying trusts are being graciously exposed. It's an invitation to go and tell him that you're exhausted with trying to sustain your own life. You're like, you're toiling like a fisherman against the winds and the seas all your life. It's a time in which we may find ourselves scrambling to live on our own resources only to realize we can't do it. We can't endure the storm. So I hope we can hear either for the millionth time or for the first time, this gracious invitation of Jesus to look to him in all our weakness and all of our fear, to ask him to help us believe, ask him for faith, trusting that he isn't a power like all these other powers that threaten to level you. He is the only power that will love you even to the very end. The Bible never says that Jesus is the expector of a great faith. It does say that he is the giver and perfecter of faith. The story that Mark refers, that tells here, is nearly identical to another story in the Bible. Uh, It's the story of Jonah. The story where the Lord tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, but instead of obeying the Lord, he gets in a boat And he heads in the exact opposite direction the Lord tells him to go. It's not insignificant that Jonah is the only prophet Jesus ever compares himself to in the whole Bible. In Luke 11 and Matthew 12, he says that one greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. The parallels of the story are pretty striking. The description of the storms are almost exactly the same. Both Jesus and Jonah sleep in the boat as the storm rages. In both stories, the sailors have to wake up the one sleeping. In both stories, they tell the one they've woken up that we think we're all about to die. And in both stories, the storm is miraculously calmed by God's supernatural intervention. And finally, in both stories, the sailors are more terrified after the storm is calmed than during the raging of the storm. The parallels are so striking, they sound like basically the same story. And you might wonder, why why does the Bible need to have two raging storm met by supernatural intervention to calm the sea, boat stories with sleepers and terrified sailors? And yet, similar as they are, there's a critical, critical difference. In Jonah, in the middle of the storm, Jonah told the sailors that the only way to stop the storm was to throw him overboard. And then the storm would stop. His logic was simple. If he's swallowed up, they won't be. If he's tossed overboard, they'll remain safe in the boat. If he dies, they'll live. So with great reluctance, that's just what the sailors on that boat do. They throw Jonah overboard into the sea, and then the storm is calm. There's peace, safety, and all the danger and threat passes. But here's the difference in Mark. Jesus is never thrown overboard to calm the storm. If you know those stories, it makes Mark's account. If you put them next to each other, it makes Mark's story seem unresolved. Like like an unresolved chord at the end of a song is just hanging there in in midair and you're wondering how this story is going to end. And yet what seems unresolved in the comparison and the contrasting of the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus comes to be resolved fully and finally on the cross of Jesus. You see, Jonah calmed the storm by being willingly thrown into the chaos of storm. But Jesus came as one greater than Jonah. Not just to command and calm a storm at sea, but as one who will command, calm, and crush underfoot the raging storm that is death itself, that is sin itself, and all its terrible effects in our world the great storm which lashes upon every human life, which is always raging, which is always afflicting us, which is always threatening us like an untamed animal, which brings nothing but destruction and brokenness and dysfunction to our world. Jesus will accomplish the calming of that storm, the greater storm. Not by being thrown overboard from the boat into the depths of the sea, but by being thrown willingly onto the cross to endure the ultimate storm of God's holy wrath against sin and all of its terrible effects. See, Jesus doesn't demand of of us, but he gives himself fully, even unto death so that we will not be undone by the final and great storm, which none of us can endure because of sin. If your faith isn't in him, it is in something. And whatever that thing is, it's it's not strong enough to save you. Only Jesus is strong enough and loving enough to deliver you from this life to the next. Because Jesus threw himself into the ultimate storm, the only storm that can really undo you, allowing it to swallow him up, we have life and peace by faith. Without Jesus, we sink. We're overwhelmed by the relentless wind and waves of sin and death and hell. And some fearsome days have come upon us, days which are too much for us, days in which it may be that Jesus is doing the fearsome, gracious work of allowing a storm to come that the false trust would be exposed and shown for what they are, and that he may be shown for who he is, a great Savior, so that whatever may come may be said of these days, that they were days in which we put our faith in Jesus, knowing that he threw himself into the chaos for us so that we might live, knowing that our Lord is both powerful and loving, that his affection is for us, that he will keep us safe, and that he will never let the storm overtake us. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, you are a great Savior. You are not merely powerful, but you are the great power that sustains the entire universe. Lord, we look to you. We trust in you. We, do, uh, we are mindful of the storm that has come upon us in this pandemic. Jesus, we pray that you would renew our energies in loving our neighbors, in praying for them, in serving, in doing whatever we can to help as your people. And Lord, may we do it as those who trust you, who see in you one greater than any storm, one greater than any power, one who, for our good and for your glory, Uh, shows us the truth of who you are so that our faith would be put in its right place. Lord, so that we may live. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.